I'm Captain Kirk. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present the winners of the 74th Annual Hunger Games. I'm the doctor, by the way. What's your name? Rose. Nice to meet you, Rose. Run for your life. My name is Optimus Prime. I am the future of war. Resistance is futile. Iron oh, Man, that's kind of catchy. It's got a nice ring to it. I mean, it's not technically accurate. It's, it's a gold titanium alloy. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. This is a recall. You're listening to Treks and Sci-Fi. Hello, everybody. This is Mark Daniels from the Great Pacific Northwest, and you're listening to Treks and Sci-Fi, episode 496 for Sunday, July 13th, 2014. I'm back this week with another classic science fiction movie. Today, I'm going to take a look at a movie from 1951. It's Flight to Mars, starring Marguerite Chapman, Cameron Mitchell, Arthur Franz, Virginia Houston, and my personal favorite, Morris Ankrum. If you like the Flash Gordon serials of the 1930s and 40s, you are going to love this movie. Before I get into this week's podcast, I'd like to thank Rico for giving me this opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I'd also like to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoy it. With that said, I'm going to play the trailer to this movie. I'll be back after the trailer with some movie information, and then I'll get into the movie. For centuries, science has studied Mars, the only planet where life may exist. Now the screen creates for you the fascinating, frightening spectacle of the first flight to Mars. Hurtling through the universe, rocketing toward terrifying dangers. Good heavens, we're heading right into it. This could destroy us. We'll have to get out of it. On toward Mars, with disaster threatening at every moment. Human emotions caught up in the terrific tension of the flight. Here is the suspense, the surprise, drama of the unknown. Flight to Mars. We have been expecting you. You will come with us now. Amazing underground Martian cities, a planet of wonders, both scientific and human, of exciting beauty. Do you still object to my proposal? To destroy these people and all the people on the world as well? Yes, I do. Our planet is dying. If this ship ever leaves here, it may well be our last chance for survival. You know the way we've constructed this thing? There's a good chance we might be able to bring back a couple of extra people. I didn't want to tell you until I was sure of it. But you're going back with it. 
tense, exciting adventure on a planet of forbidding danger. Starring Marguerite Chapman and Cameron Mitchell. Flight to Mars was based on a 1923 novel, Alita, by Alexei Tolstoy, and a 1924 silent film, Alita, Queen of Mars. It has a running time of 72 minutes. It was released November 11, 1951. It was directed by Leslie Sealander. He was an American film and television director. He was born May 26, 1900, in Los Angeles, California. His career spanned over 30 years. He directed over 120 feature films and dozens of television episodes. To this day, he remains one of the most prolific directors of feature westerns in cinema history, having directed 107 westerns. In 1968, he retired from the industry. He passed away December 5, 1979, at the age of 79. Here's a little background information on the stars of this movie. Starting at the top, Marguerite Chapman. She was Alita. She was an American film and television actress. She was born in Chatham, New York on March 9, 1918. She was working as a telephone switchboard operator in White Plains, New York when she was discovered by a talent scout. She signed a modeling contract with the prestigious John Robert Powers Agency in New York. The attention she got from modeling brought an offer from 20th Century Fox. She got her first break in 1942 when she was cast in a leading female role in an adventure film serial called Spy Smashers, a production that is considered by many as one of the best serials ever made. During World War II, she entertained the troops, worked for the War Bond Drive, and at the Hollywood Canteen. During the 1950s, she continued to act mostly in secondary film roles, notably Marilyn Monroe's 1955 hit, The Seven Year Itch. She kept busy into the early 1960s with guest appearances on a number of different TV shows. She has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and she passed away August 31st, 1999, at the age of 81. Next up, Cameron Mitchell. He was Steve Abbott. He was an American film, television, and Broadway actor. He was born Cameron McDowell Mitchell on November 4th, 1918, in Dallastown, Pennsylvania. He was a son of a minister. He served as a bombardier in the United States Army Air Forces during World War II. His film career began with minor roles in 1945. He would go on to do more than 300 films and dozens of television shows. During the 1960s, he starred in several Italian films, several of which were directed by Mario Bava. He will be best remembered for his role as Uncle Buck in The High Chaparral. He passed away on June 7, 1994, at the age of 75. Next up, Arthur Franz. He was Dr. Jim Barker. He was an American film and television actor. He was born in Perth Amboy, New Jersey, on February 29, 1920. He was a B-movie actor whose most notable role was Lieutenant Junior Grade H. Peyton Jr. in The Kane Mutiny. Science fiction fans will remember him from The Invaders from Mars. He was Dr. Stuart Kelston. During World War II, he served as a navigator on a B-24 Liberator in the United States Army Air Forces. His plane was shot down over Romania, and he was put in a POW camp from which he escaped, 
this guy's a real American hero. He kept busy into the 1970s doing guest spots on television shows like the FBI, Mission Impossible, and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. He passed away June 17, 2006, at the age of 86. Next up, Virginia Houston. She was Carol Stafford in this movie. She was an American film actress. She was born in Wisner, Nebraska on August 24, 1925. She appeared in many 1940s and 50s film noir and adventure films. She suffered a back injury in a car accident which disrupted her career at its peak. When she returned, she dropped to minor roles in B-movies. She retired from acting after she married a wealthy real estate agent. She passed away on February 28, 1981 at the age of 56. Now here's my favorite person, Morris Ankrum. If you've watched science fiction movies or old movies from the 1940s, cowboy movies and things like that, you'll know his face. He always plays the authority figure. He's always a judge or a general or a land baron, even an Indian chief. But you'll know him if you watch old movies. Okay. He was an American radio, television and film actor. He was born Morris Nesbaum on August 28th. 1896 in Danville, Illinois. He was a graduate of the University of Southern California's law school. He went on to become an attorney and an associate professor in economics at the University of California at Berkeley. While at Berkeley, he became involved in the drama department and eventually began teaching and directing at the Pasadena Playhouse. He signed a contract with Paramount Pictures in 1930. He mostly acted in westerns and science fiction movies. His acting career spanned over 30 years. He appeared in several science fiction movies in the 1950s. He appeared in Rocket Ship XM, Red Planet Mars, Invaders from Mars, Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, Cronus, Beginning of the End, and The Giant Claw. He kept busy getting roles in different television shows in the late 50s and early 60s, including a reoccurring role as a judge on Perry Mason. He passed away on September 2nd, 1964, at the age of 64. And that's all I have for movie information. So now let's get into the movie. The movie starts off with the United States government announcing to the world that they're going to launch a manned rocket ship to Mars. The crew consists of Dr. Lane, he's the leader of the mission. Dr. Jim Barker, he's the ship's engineer. His assistant, Carol Stanford. Uh, Professor Jackson, he's the observer on the ship. And Steve Abbott, he's the newspaper reporter. The next scene, we see Steve Abbott, and he's going to interview the crew before they launch. So the first person he's going to interview is Dr. Lane. Dr. Lane, that's the highest priority secret message we've ever had in the Pentagon. And we've had some. How does it feel to be the head of a project as immense as this one? Truthfully, it's a little terrifying. Uh, but you mustn't print that, Steve. Well, I should think it would be terrifying. I know enough about rocket propulsion to believe there's an outside chance you'll make it there. But aren't you worried about getting back? I used to climb the Swiss Alps. Our greatest ambition then was to climb the highest possible peak. We worried later about getting back. Can I print that, Doctor? If you wish. Well, Steve, this is a plum assignment for you. Making a trip of this sort merely to report what you see. Yep. I'm the only one going who isn't a scientist. You deserve it. You made a wonderful reputation as a war correspondent. You've been reading the jacket cover of my last book. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Lane, 
I once heard of a man who climbed a higher mountain than anyone else alive, but he was never able to get down again. What's left of him is still up there. The point is, Steve, he made it. Where are you going? Pre-flight interviews with everybody making the trip. I think I've gotten as much from Dr. Lane as he's going to give. Oh, I'll give you the scientific reasons why I want to go. I'm the non-scientist, remember, doctor? <laughs> no, I want to write about the personal human reasons why a man would risk death to go out into space. You've given me yours. I gather you don't think they're too good. I'm on my way to see Jim Barker. Maybe your chief engineer has a different reason for wanting to go. Oh, I'm sure he must have. Steve, I'm a little puzzled. You're going to write this all up, but how are you going to file a story on Mars to be printed back here? Well, General, I'm afraid I can't give you the answer to that one yet. But don't forget, while en route, we're going to drop these self-propelled space cylinders aimed at Earth. They should land here. We'll be waiting for them. See you tomorrow at the takeoff. After interviewing Dr. Lane, Steve leaves Dr. Lane's office and heads over to Jim Barker's apartment to interview him. Well, let's get on with the interview. You know, if we make it. Both the isolationists and the interventionists will take the bows. Wait a minute. You said, if we make it. Tell me, Jim, what do you really think our chances are of getting there? Well, everything we know about astronomy, propulsion, and rocket navigation tells us that we will. Yeah, but there's a lot we don't know. There's a whole universe out there, Steve, the totally unknown, beyond anyone's comprehension. We try to figure it out when we're kids, but we never can. Yeah. Yeah, let me see if I can't frame my lead article featuring you. You see, I want to accent the human terms about Jim Barker, chief engineer, whose genius was largely responsible for the construction of the rocket. The man with a dream who couldn't live or think or breathe anything else, who'd worked and planned for years to make this expedition possible. The man with a skylight in his Baltimore apartment so he could sleep under the stars. You make it sound poetic. Right in the middle of their interview, they get interrupted by Carol Stafford. She shows up at Jim's door, and she's mad because they have a date and Jim has forgotten. Oh, how are you, Carol? Oh, Carol, I'd like you to meet Steve Abbott. He's the newspaper man that's going on on the trip with us. Uh, Steve, this is Carol Stafford. How do you do? Hello. Uh, what are you doing here, Carol? We had a date tonight, Jim. Oh, uh, he held me up. Oh, yes, I can see you're all dressed to go out. A drink? No. I understand you wanted to interview me, Mr. Abbott. Well, you couldn't have picked a better time. I'm just in the mood to tell the story of my life. Father was a physicist. Taught her a lot. She's a smart girl. I certainly am. She learned spaceship engineering in only three years. Spending each day right at the elbow of Mr. Jim Barker. Mr. Abbott, do you think three years is too long to spend at somebody's elbow? Steve. Call me Steve. I wasn't going to let her take a trip like this, but uh, she learned so much she became indispensable. I couldn't replace her. So you see, Mr. Abbott, what you're looking at is an indispensable scientific unit. The first assistant to the pilot of a rocket ship. Well, I know you have the whole story. I sure have. The last to be interviewed is Professor Jackson, and he's on his way to a television interview, but he stops by Steve's hotel room to be interviewed before he goes to the station. Professor William Jackson is here, sir. Tell him to come in. Professor?
Be right with you. I have only five minutes there waiting to take me to a television broadcast. I thought I was handling public relations. Look here, I don't even know you. I take the time and trouble to come to your hotel. Because I haven't been able to catch up with you. It was agreed that none of us were to appear on radio or TV. Because once we start giving out interviews at random and for commercial gain... The world has a right to my opinions and observations. That's why I was invited on this trip to make observations, gather geological, chemical, astronomical data. Look, Professor Jackson, you're a famous man, one of the outstanding scholars of our time. That's why you're coming with us. But there'll be no speeches on TV. Hello? Get me Dr. Lane at the Radcliffe. I'm considered a scholar, but unfortunately, that hasn't made me rich. On the contrary, it's left me quite poor. I'm leaving behind an ailing wife, a daughter whose husband was killed in the war, and two young grandchildren. Oh, just a minute, doctor. I was to be given $3,000 for my appearance on television. I wanted to leave it with them. Oh, sorry, doctor. Yes, I wanted to talk to you, but it isn't important. It can wait. Yeah, I'll see you later. If you do a good job on TV, it'll save me the trouble of writing it. So go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. See you tonight when a police escort picks us up. Next, the crew board the rocket ship they strap themselves in and they blast off to Mars. On the seventh day of the mission, they run into a meteor storm which damages their landing gear. They must decide whether to head back to Earth or crash land on Mars. Well, folks, we have a real problem. The landing gear we depended on is now useless. We're going to have to crash land. Can't we use the jets to ease us down? We may have to, but it will eat into our fuel supply. Better to use some of that to find a favorable landing spot. You'll have to make a choice. We can make it back to Earth and attempt a landing there, or we can try a landing on Mars. The choice is up to you. Well, I'm pretty fond of the world myself, even if it's only a little corpuscle. If we get back, maybe we can make another trip. Not much chance of that. If anything, it would discourage future flights. Assuming anyone does survive on Mars, what will he be able to do? Will he be able to report back what he finds? There's a remote possibility. The atomic power head might not have been damaged too much to get off a space cylinder. It doesn't look very promising either, Willie. But if there's any chance of sending back any data or information about Mars, I'm in favor of going on. After all, that was the object of our flight. Our survival is of secondary importance. We can be on Mars within 24 hours. At least that's the shorter trip. If that's an advantage under the circumstances. We're almost at the top of that mountain you wanted to climb. What do you think, Carol? Well, it doesn't look like we're going to come out alive either way. But after all, we did set out to do something. It says it for me. I knew that it would. Okay. I'll make it unanimous. Good. I'm glad we're all together in spirit, too. Jim, what's your plan? Well, I can't tell yet. Not till I see the terrain. We'll have to use our jets to look around, but it'll be rough at best. Well, it's in your hands. They crash land on the surface of Mars near some chimney-like structures. When they go to investigate the structures, they're greeted by five Martians who speak perfect English. We have been expecting you. Expecting us? You. 
You speak English? For many years, we have picked up your radio broadcasts and deciphered them. Many of us have even learned to speak some of your languages. I am Ikron, president of our council which rules this planet. We are happy to meet you and honored by the presence of your eminence. You say you pick up our broadcast. Yes, your first two cylinders arrived back on Earth safely. Since then, they have lost contact with you, and there is a worldwide vigil awaiting news of your party. Can we get through to them? No. Although for years we have been able to receive broadcasts, we are still unable to send them. Our best efforts have been reported by Earthmen only as faint signals coming from Mars. You will come with us now. The Martians escort the Earthmen to their underground city, which has flying cars and futuristic buildings. Where do you get your air and light? They make them. There is a mineral called corium, from which we extract hydrogen and oxygen. You'll find that we live rather well. It's a masterpiece of understatement. I think the council is waiting. The Earthmen are taken to the Martian council, where they meet its council's former president, Tillamar, now advisor to the council. You will find we have much in common. As you have no doubt already observed, we owe our continued existence here to science. All of our facilities will be placed at your disposal. Thank you. You've made us feel very welcome. And I don't think that scientists have ever had a richer field to explore. As you know, we have tried interplanetary flights. Though for all our science, we have had no success such as this. I am very much interested in what you have done. Tell me, this atomic power, which I have heard so much about in broadcasts from your world. Uh, just a moment, Icon. We can exchange questions and answers endlessly. There'd be time for that. Now I suggest that our visitors be permitted to rest and refresh themselves. This is Telemar, our senior advisor and former chief of our council. Terrace will show you to your dwelling, and after you have had time to adjust yourselves, we will talk further. They are then taken to their quarters by a young Martian woman named Terrace. After resting a while, the Earthmen return to the Council and ask the Martians for their help in repairing their spaceship. The Martians agree to help the Earthmen, but Ikron has another plan. If our rocket ship is to be reconstructed, we'll need all the help you can give us. That's why we are here, to ask for your approval and assistance. Do you really think the rocket can be repaired? That depends on how much of it can be salvaged. There shouldn't be too much trouble to construct a new shell. But the big problem will be if the atomic power heads have been destroyed. Well, in that case, you could not undertake such a flight. Well, we'd have to work out some substitute, possibly from your corium. We will send a party to salvage your ship whenever you are ready. We want to help. However, this is a matter that must be discussed by our consul. We will let you know our decision shortly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I was anxious that it was not made to sound too easy. However, the approval will be granted. Do you still object to my plan? To destroy these people and all the people on the world as well? Yes, I do. We will build others from the same design. A fleet of them, a hundred fleets. And when we finish with the ruins of their world, what then? A plan to conquer the universe? More rocket ships? Where is the end of it? 
I seek only the sanctuary of a place to live for our people. Our planet is dying. The Corium will be gone. What plan do you suggest to save ourselves? That we make a pact with them for certain areas of the Earth. The people who have come here have no power or authority to make pacts. Once we let them escape, once their ship is gone, it may well be our last chance for survival. Surely they'll make other trips. What if they return in power and force and conquer us? They will kill us. I ask for a vote of the council. My plan or Telemars? Icron. Telemars. Telemars. Icron's plan is carried by a vote of four to three. I need hardly caution, senior counselor, of the secrecy of this decision. The space travelers will not be warned. We will let them proceed with the rebuilding of their ship in the naive belief that we will let them return to Earth. Once the rocket is ready, they will become our prisoners. Fellow counselors, soon now. Soon. The evacuation from a dead planet will begin. First the armies. Then the civilians. Ikron assigns Mars's greatest scientist, Justin, and a work crew to help the Earthmen repair their ship. Ikron also assigns Terrace to spy on them. Justin assigns his daughter Alita to be Jim's assistant. Are you Jim? Mm-hmm, that's right. Your new assistant has arrived. Oh, thanks. Show me. There's no one to show in. I'm your new assistant. My name's Alita. What's the matter? Is something wrong? Oh, no. No, no, it's just that I, uh... I... Oh, it's not. And, uh, I'm sort of puzzled over these, uh, uh... These new metals. Well, this is the one you want. Both can take the pressure, but this has a better coefficient of expansion for temperature variations. You'll do. Should have known Justin knew what he was doing. You like him? Oh, I think he's a wonderful man. Then I think you'll do, too. He's my father. Jim and Alita find a way to make Corium work in their rocket ship. But Terrace overhears their conversation and reports it to Ikron. Yes, there's no question about it. They will be able to take off for their own planet. Let them think so. Do you know how long before they'll be ready? No, but I'll find out in time. Good. I want them to complete their work. Then we'll step in. Unbeknownst to Ikron and Terrace... Alita overhears Terrace's report to Ikron. Alita then warns Jim about Ikron's plan. Justin urges him to blast off as soon as possible while they still have a chance. Jim and Alita come up with a plan to fake an explosion and mislead Ikron. I'm all right now. Is there much damage? Just the trigger mechanism. But it'll take at least another month to replace it. That long? Maybe longer. Oh, no. Everybody can go home now. There's nothing more you can do today. Beautiful performance. Jim tells the rest of the Earthmen that they're going to be leaving in two weeks. Jim also asks Alita to come back to Earth with him and be his wife. Two weeks later, they board the ship one by one. But Terrace... Seeing this, she suspects something funny at the ship, and she reports it to Ikron. Yes, Terrace? I'm worried about the rocket, sir. Something is going on. It looks very suspicious. Why do you think so? First of all, no workmen have been allowed inside the rocket in the last 24 hours. 
And secondly, the corium tanks, which were to hold fuel for their return, have been moved from the laboratory. You mean they may have been placed in the rocket? Well, I don't know. Even if they are on the ship, it may mean nothing. But I thought you ought to know. You might want to question one of them. Well, there is one we can question. The girl, Alita. Good. I will bring her here. No, no, no. Not here. In the council room. Justin tells Jim that Alita has been arrested and has been taken to the council. Justin urges him to blast off, but Jim is not hearing about it. He heads for the council chambers to rescue Alita. Will you tell us the truth or go on lying? I suggest we hold her and send our men to seize the rocket at once. The council will vote on it. Wait. If she's telling the truth, what will be gained by seizing the rocket? According to her, it isn't ready to go. And if we take over the rocket now, it may never be ready for flight. We need the Earthmen working on it. If she's lying, it will depart, and we will be left with nothing. Ikron, I have trust in the things of the universe and in the Creator. You are a naive, fumbling old man. A vote. Ikron's plan or Tillema's. It's time for action, not words. Those who favor Ikron. Wait! Why are you here? We should request his permission to have our men investigate the rocket. Why should it be investigated at all? What is all this? I have the promise of your help. We have good and just reason for believing that you have betrayed us. If that is so, you will find our generosity is at an end. And the sort of hospitality we will show will have a different taste. A vote. Icron's plan or Tillamar's? Icron. Very well. The rocket is to be seized at once. These people are to be held. Jim and Tillamar attack and fight off the guards and head for the rocket ship. They make it to the rocket ship, they board it, and they blast off to Earth. And that's the end of the movie. Now it's time for some movie trivia. A couple of the props in this movie were reused from other science fiction movies. The spacesuits that the Martians wore were from Destination Moon. The interior of the spaceships and the sound effects were used from Rocket Ship XM. In the scene where Steve Abbott and Professor Jackson go to the rear of the ship to check for damage after the meteor storm, Professor Jackson opens up a big red thing. That big red thing is a complete belly ball turret from a World War II B-17. According to Cameron Mitchell, the entire movie was shot in five days. Although Marguerite Chapman got top billing, she only appears in the last half of the movie. The model of the rocket ship will be used again in It, The Terror from Beyond Space, Queen of Outer Space, and World Without End. And that's all I have for trivia. Here are my comments about the movie. I watched the 2002 DVD release from Image Entertainment. It's part of the Wade Williams collection. I picked it up from Amazon for about mm, seven bucks. The picture quality is pretty good for a 63-year-old movie. It has some artifacts and some burn holes throughout the movie. The sound quality is pretty good as well. Eh, there's still lots of crackles and hisses and pops throughout the movie as well. Um, it's got a good story. I like the Martian double cross, you know, the whole thing about we'll help you, but underneath we were going to take your ship and invade your planet. I like that. That's a very cool story. Uh, the costumes are pretty cool, too. They reminded me a lot of the, the costumes in Flash Gordon. Um, and then the spaceship with, hanging from the string with the fire coming out the back. Totally fl uh, Flash Gordon. I kept expecting to see Buster Crab walk through one of the scenes at any moment. There's a couple things that really stuck out in the movie for me. Martian women have really long legs and really short skirts. I mean, these skirts are short. This is 1951, and Star Trek's another 15 years away, and they're shorter than the Star Trek short skirts. So, 
that's one thing I noticed. And the other thing I noticed was you got a group of human humans that crash on Mars and they put on World War II bombing gear and oxygen masks and then they go out on Mars and then they're greeted by Martians that have spacesuits on. And I never understood why would the Martians have spacesuits on? This is their planet. This is their oxygen. They, I mean, their atmosphere. What are they in a spacesuit for? That always bothered me. There's one character that got on my last nerve while watching this movie. Carol Stafford. I can't stand her. But she's an essential part of the movie because they have the double love triangle. You know, she's got... Uh, Dr. Jim Barker and Steve Abbott and her. So that's one love triangle. And then you have Dr. Barker uh, and her again. And then you have Alita. So there's a double love triangle. I'm like, oh, I could I could do without I can barely deal with one triangle, not two love triangles. There's a couple scenes in here that I really don't like with her in it. One of them is when they're on their way to Mars and Professor Jackson pulls out his wallet, shows his picture of his family, and she's, oh, I wish I had a family. And all. Then why'd you go on the ship then? Your family, Professor? My two grandchildren. They're beautiful. I often wish I'd married and had a family. But astronomy and engineering have taken up almost all of my life. My life's been sheltered but full. Things I've learned, I've passed on to others. Talk as if you were already dead. You really believe we're going to come back? Sure, I do. Personally, I feel this rocket is my coffin. Who would have expected that attitude from you? <laughs> as long as we remain alive, I'll contribute all that I know to the success of the expedition. In the meantime, Professor, you're contributing an awful lot of gloom. He's contributed more than any of us. A real wife, a home, two lovely grandchildren. I'd trade ten trips to Mars for that. I mean, you're going to Mars. Why would you get on a ship if you want a family? That doesn't make any sense. The other scene is when they're on Mars and Terrace is taking them to their quarters. And, you know, you're, you're a scientist. You've been on a rocket ship. You're going to Mars. And what is the first thing you want to see when you go to your quarters? The kitchen. Why would you want to see the kitchen? It's, there's so many other things in the Martian underground cities to see. You want to see the kitchen. What, you got a pot roast to cook or something? This is where you will live. Your sleeping rooms and other quarters are on either side. Thank you. What I want to see is the kitchen. The kitchen? Yes, where food is prepared. Oh, we don't have kitchens. We call it the food laboratory, and we have a large one for each district. You order your food, and it is delivered, ready to be served. This is a woman's paradise. As a matter of fact, I assumed you might be hungry and ordered some things for you. They should be here by now. Everything is here, ready to be eaten. When you've finished, you just put everything back, close it up, and press this button. That's all there is to it. No dishwashing? Well, that's taken care of mechanically. Mars, I love you. Yeah, I, I just really couldn't take her. Um, there is a good moment in the film, and it reminds me a lot of Cosmos. I know it was just on with Neil deGrasse Tyson, and that made me think of it as the Cosmos moment. It's when Dr. Um, Lane explains to the rest of the crew about the universe. There was once a theory advanced that the universe is a living, giant being, and that we, as human beings, made in its image, are miniature universes in ourselves containing millions of corpuscles. 
The components of each corpuscle imagine themselves to be in a complete world of their own, though they are aware of the universe of other worlds around them. Oh, that's fantastic. Is it? I wonder. We understand so very little, really. If space is limitless and endless, then don't you see, the opposite must be true, too. Smallness never ends, either, but continues being tinier and tinier, just as the enormity of the universe becomes more and more enormous. Doctor, you're giving me the creeps. What happens to us when we die? The whole universe dies, just as the universe in which we ourselves live may someday be no more. But there are endless universes beyond our own. I know the theory, but it makes this trip seem small and futile. If we're simply going from one corpuscle and some giant being to another, what will we find? Crossing over may provide some of the answers to things man has wanted to know since the beginning of time. If so, we'll be swallowed in space and forgotten. Overall, this is a fun movie. And I would recommend this movie to any science fiction fan, especially the ones in the 1950s genre. I'm going to give this movie a 7 out of 10. And those are my comments about this movie. Before I wrap up this week's podcast, I'd like to thank Rico again for giving me another opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I'd also like to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoyed it. Take care, everyone. This is M5, signing off. Until next time, live long and prosper. Tricks in Cyber. Let it bring you down.